Welcome home from Master's College, Brittany. Oh, I'm not going to let you go again. Well, this morning, I'm going to take you to two snapshots of the early church community found in Acts 5 and Acts 6. Now, uh, in the world in general, if we look at the two things that it teaches about a, a church community, many people would say that these two things are absolutely contradictory. They are not. So for the first of them in Acts 5, we have a video representation of it. So we'll see that and then I'm going to come back up and read the second. There are some stories that end with a quaint little phrase, and they lived happily ever after. But this is not one of those stories. This is the grim tale of Ananias and Sapphira. The early church had begun to flourish, and all the believers were getting along quite splendidly. They shared everything they had with one another, claiming nothing as their own. There were no needy people among them. Those who owned fields or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the apostles as a gift. Joseph was one such man who sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles as an offering. And oh, what a wonderful blessing it was to everyone. All the believers were encouraged and celebrated Joseph's selfless act. Well, not everyone. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira, who were counted among the believers, saw the way Joseph was admired and grew very jealous. He thinks he's better than us, they grumbled to each other. We deserve that kind of attention. They dwelt on it day and night. Finally, one night, they devised a plan to sell a piece of land, secretly keeping part of the money for themselves and giving the rest to the apostles. They would not necessarily say they were giving all of the money they received from the sale. They would just let everyone assume it. And presto, they would instantly be famous as self-sacrificing believers who surrendered everything to Jesus. So, with his wife's consent, Ananias sold the land, secretly kept part of the money, and brought the remainder to the apostles. But Peter saw right through Ananias, saying, Ananias, why have you let evil fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor dead. Everyone who heard the news was filled with fear. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened. Everyone nervously watched as Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? The room fell silent. Yes, she replied. That was the price? Peter responded, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test God like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than she also fell down dead. When the young men returned, they found her body. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. By this time, the whole church and, in fact, everyone who heard of these things had a newfound respect for God. 
So, unfortunately, there's no happy ending in this tale. But there is a warning here to take God very seriously. Dare I say, <laughs> deadly serious. <laughs> now the second snapshot into the early church is found in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. I want us to stand uh, to hear this part of God's word. Acts chapter 6, one chapter after this has taken place with Ananias and Sapphira. This is what we read, beginning with verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Proctorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. May be seated. What I want us to see in these two different uh, snapshots of the local church is that any church community in which God is the one who's in charge is going to be, number one, a community of truth. And, number two, a community of compassion. Not, not either or, both and. Not one or the other, both of them committed to what is true and committed to being a place filled with compassion for anyone who comes in. So I want us to look at that together. If you have your Bibles, look at chapter 5 first. This episode of Ananias and Sapphira, which I think teaches us that a church in which God is present and at work, has to be a community committed to what is true. Now, I know this, that this episode of uh, Ananias and Sapphira uh, has often frightened churchgoers. Maybe you're afraid that you even came here today. And rightly so. In in the uh, passage that had just been recorded before this, Barnabas had been so generous about giving, and so Ananias and Sapphira, I think, tried to model that. I think the video is right about that, hoping that they would gain something out of this. But they deceived. They only gave a part of what they said they were giving. And you know the result. Quickly, judgment came, a a judgment that ended in death. Now, uh, if you're new to church, you may not know this. Uh, There are many times in the Bible when people deceive and lie. And yet not every time does God's judgment come so quickly And with such immediate finality, you know that, don't you? Otherwise, we'd probably have nobody in church today. Uh, Even in this text, one of the people, Peter, 
is a person who just a few months before had been involved in, in deceiving himself. You know that story, don't you? When Jesus went to the cross and these people came and said, wait a minute, you were with him. You're one of his apostles. And remember what Peter said several times. No, I didn't even know him. And yet, um, Peter found mercy. Peter was still there. Peter was still being used by God. So it makes us ask the question, what on earth is happening in Acts chapter 5, these first 11 verses? Well, I think I might be able to help us with this. A little bit, maybe. Uh, I don't want to take the seriousness of this away at all. But there are two other places in the Bible that I see this sort of thing happening. And both of them are at times that God is beginning a work with his people. The first is in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, you know that story too, don't you? God had been walking with his people. Uh, Adam and Eve were there. And then they disobeyed him. And in Genesis chapter 3, what's the first thing we find them doing? Hiding. Deceiving God. Trying to keep from him what they had done in their lives. And what came to them also was an immediate kind of a judgment in which death entered the human race. It was a quick judgment with that kind of finality, as God was beginning his work with people. Uh, The second time is found in the book of Joshua, chapter 7. As the people of God had come through uh, the wilderness, were going into the promised land, and they were going and making sure that the land became theirs, there was one of their members, one of their people, Achan, who had pillaged gold and silver and a valuable garment, and once again was hiding what he had done. And you know what that resulted in too? It also resulted in his death. As I look at those two episodes and then combine it with this one, what I begin to see is that when God is beginning to found something, he wants to put in the very foundations of what he is doing with his people, those things that are most important to him. And it becomes very clear to me that one of the things that is most important to the God who is the head of this church is truth. And integrity. I mean, God makes himself known as a God of truth. Uh, Jesus, when he came, he identified himself this way. I am the truth. And in fact, he said, if our own lives are going to be what they should be, they must be characterized by, by what is true. It is the truth that sets us free. And so one of the things it says to me is this. If we're going to be a community of people, and I call it that glorifies God, but that means reflects to our world what is important to God. In this very, very serious text, God is declaring to us that truthfulness and integrity must reign in our church, in our lives, and in our total church if this place is going to honor God. Now, out of this, there are just a couple of things I want you to think about and take home. Um, Number one, God has promised that he will judge all that is evil. And one of the things that is wrong in the sight of God is when we deceive, when we're dishonest, when we lie. Now, in these three cases that I mentioned, Adam and Eve, Achan, and Ananias and Sapphira, God did it more quickly than he usually does. But the fact is that God judges dishonesty and lying, which is the frightening part for us. Because let's face it, brothers and sisters, we've all engaged in it. And a big part of of the gospel, of the good news, is that God has found a way to judge our dishonesty when Jesus came. He bore the penalty of death that you and I deserve. 
And when we give our lives to him and open up our lives to him, he is willing to cast that as far as east is from the west, bearing the penalty himself and declaring us right with God. Hallelujah. And yet, in saying this, the thing that we have to recognize today is that us then walking in the truth is something that is of utmost importance to God. That if there is deception in our lives, one of the things we must do is open up that part of our lives. Get rid of anything that is hidden. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 9, talks to us about how we can claim that cleansing and know that it is ours. That if we will confess our sins, so you can't, not hiding them, opening up our lives, then He is faithful. He is just. He will forgive us our sins. And He will cleanse us from all that's not right. But brothers and sisters, let us know for sure that what He calls us to do when we say that we're followers of Jesus and that God is our God, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, one of the things we have to make sure is that those things that we are hiding come into the open and that we turn from them and that we walk in the truth. Do you see that? Second point I want you to see. I think one of the surest signs that you can look for in your life when, when there may be something wrong is when you look in your life and see that there is something that you are hiding. See, Genesis chapter 3, the first thing they did was hid. Uh, in Joshua chapter 7, the first thing he did was hid the stuff. And Ananias and Sapphira tried to hide it, but God knew. So this morning I just want to say... Just think about your life. If there's something about your finances that you feel like you can't open them up and let people look into them, you may be in danger. If there's a relationship that you have that you feel you have to hide from somebody close to you, I think God would say, beware. And I think in our day, it's become so easy to hide all sorts of things because of what has happened with the Internet. If there are websites you go to or in relationships you engage in there that you keep hidden from those around you, I say this morning, be sure to open up that part of your life to God and say, Lord, I can hide it no longer. Here it is. Cleanse me from it and I will turn toward the truth. See, hiding things is what got them into trouble. And I just pray you and I will learn from it. And then I think the main lesson for us here at Lake Avenue Church from Acts 5 is this, that we have to be committed to being a church that teaches the truth as found in Scripture. We have to know what's important to God or we don't know how we're supposed to live. Do you see that? We must teach the truth. And I I want you to come to church saying, Lord, help me to see what is important to you and what is true in your word and how I should live. And then we must be a community that holds one another accountable to living according to the truth in ways consistent with Scripture. I'll just tell you, uh, a family or a friendship that you have or any community that is marked by integrity is a beautiful place. Isn't that true? Uh, When we come in, we feel like we can trust those around us. There's such such freedom in that. But, But when we have things that we hide... It just breaks relationships and it destroys true community. 
So I, I want us to look so seriously at this text. I want us to show you the video because I think you'll never forget it. <laughs> but I want you to see why when we come, I want us always to open this word and, and hear the truth and then make a commitment. Lord, I want to live that way. Now in Acts chapter 5, verse 11, I know some people are shocked by this phrase, great fear sees the whole church. And then when you read from that point on, it seemed like the church was healthy and joy-filled. <laughs> in our world, we, we sit there and I think, wait a minute, fear is always bad. Now you're listening here, right? Fear can be so damaging to us. And it can be so debilitating to us. I know that when it comes from abuse that that's true. But there are certain kinds of fear that are freeing. Uh, like what, Pastor? Uh, Chris and my kids got me a grill for um, Father's Day. That thing gets hot fast, doesn't it? I am afraid to stick my hand in that grill when it's hot. Is that good for me? I'm just telling you, it is great for me. It keeps me from burning my hand. And I'll tell you, there's so many other ways that you can apply this. What, what I'm trying to say is that if you have a really valuable relationship, that the fear of dishonoring that relationship by lying or, or being dishonest and hiding is something we should fear. It will, it will damage that relationship. And for us to think that we can hide something from God instead of living in integrity and honesty with Him, it's going to destroy our relationship with God. So one of the verses, you know, is one of my foundational verses for my life is Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Here it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Many people don't understand that. I hope you do right now. That when you and I fear displeasing the Lord and we don't want anything to break our relationship with God and the one thing that we don't want to do is displease God, then that's going to be the beginning of us being a wise group of people. And one of the basic things that he says is be people of truthfulness and integrity. And I'll tell you, this kind of transparency and integrity that is called for in Acts chapter 5 is what makes Acts chapter 6 possible. See, when we're a place of integrity and we open up our lives, then we can truly be a place of compassion to one another. That brings me to Acts chapter 6. I want you to see it. Because the church was not just a place that went and just said, you've got to live according to the truth or else you're going to get yours. That kind of integrity that was there flowed into them being able to be the kind of place that I long for our church to be. Because I'm just telling you, these two parts of their community, I'm really praying that... Our church is just going to grow in both of these areas. That you're going to just love to study the Word of God and know the truth and commit to living it, but also it will flow into us being a place of tremendous compassion. So, in Acts 4.34, the Bible tells us that in that early church, there were no needy persons among them in the church. But by Acts chapter 6, there were needy people among them in the church. And they were widows in the ancient world, whether it was, you were in the Roman culture, the Greek culture, or the Jewish culture. Uh, the main support system when you had a need uh, was the family. And so any group of people that somehow were separated from that family support system, or if the family was broken, there would be people that there were no support structures to meet their needs. And so three major groups were always in trouble in a community. Widows if they were separated from their family systems, orphans, children, 
and immigrants. And the church in the early centuries became the place where all three of those groups found a place of belonging and found a place that walked with them and supported them. That's part of why I wanted us to read this thing about the stranger among us. The early church has always said, if people are outside the support systems of your culture, we've got to be that place where we say, come and be our brother or our sister. Now, the people who were having trouble in the early church, the first ones that weren't being supported were these Greek-speaking, Hellenistic, it's called Greek-speaking widows in the church. They had needs. Now, it wasn't that the early church had insufficient funds to meet the needs. Among all the people, there were plenty of funds. And it seemed like they had a heart of generosity. Joseph, that we call Barnabas, son of encouragement, was just one of those. When they saw there were needs, the people who had more were willing to sell something or give up something to meet the needs of the people. So if that's true, what was wrong? Why is it that there were people coming to church that had needs that weren't being met. If you had a generous church with plenty of resources. Well, I can think of several reasons. But I think one of the main ones was, I wonder whether the apostles who were fully in charge of distributing what was there to meet the needs of their people, I wonder if they even knew about this group of people in the church that was having great, great needs. I just wonder. And part of the reason is that the apostles were supposed to be spending their time studying the Word, time with God in prayer, teaching the Word. So if they're doing all of that, and they're holding people accountable to the Word, like in Acts 5, and they're having to know and meet all the needs of their people, I just don't think they were getting it done. Because by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, the church in Jerusalem had grown to be quite big. How big? I think it was about the same size as Lake Avenue Church. I mean, if we put our Saturday service, our 9 o'clock service, our 11 o'clock service, comunidad, and all of our children and students and people in the adult classes who may not come in, all together, we were about the same size as the Jerusalem Church. And they were becoming a very diverse church with people from many different cultural backgrounds, so much like Lake Avenue Church. So here, I'm going to try to put together what I see. I wrote some of it out here. Don't get bored by what... But I'm going to try to put together what I see. So, the Aramaic speaking, and that would have been like the apostles, leader, majority leaders, which they were in Jerusalem. That would have been the main group. In our church, it would be a person like me, grew up speaking English, and I'm from the majority people group. So, the Aramaic speaking majority leaders almost surely weren't even aware of the needs of this growing group of Greek-speaking believers who were so culturally different from them. Because I imagine, because all the leaders uh, were men who were Hebrew-speaking men, like Peter and John and all of those people. And you know how we are. Um, We may be open to relationships with everyone, but our natural affinity is to go to people who are very much like us, right? I'm from West Virginia. We probably have six or eight other people in our church from West Virginia. I know you all. Because we just, get, when I use an illustration from West Virginia, zip, you know, people come, I'm like a magnet to all West Virginians. Fellow hillbillies love to get together. It's just kind of the way we are, right? And that's the way all of us are. And so for the apostles, I'm sure that their circles of friends and the people they listened to were mostly people just like themselves. But the people who were coming into the early church were incredibly 
diverse. So you have these women in the church, they were Jewish, and they looked Jewish, but culturally, they were more like the Greeks. Now, if any church in the world can understand what was going on, it's Lake Avenue Church. It would be like us. People, we come in here from every country of the world, just about. Uh, and so sometimes you come in as a first-generation person from oh, Egypt or China or, or Vietnam, and, um, and so you, you identify by the way you look with you know, the, the particular people group. But if you go to your first generation, after you've been here two or three generations, well, you, you become culturally Americanized, right? And so you walk over to a, a, a first-generation church, all people just like yourself, uh, except they all speak that language and culturally are much more like home country. You walk in there and, well, you've got to figure out a way to, to bridge this divide. You, do you know what I'm getting at here? And that's what was happening there. So you had a group of people coming into this church that just didn't have the relationships back to the majority leaders. And I doubt that they even knew that this was going on. So what were these Greek-speaking women going to do? Were they just going to get upset and keep it to themselves and say, well, I love Jesus and I come and I like the word, but I'm hurting? Or would they become transparent and open up their lives and find a way to get their needs out? Now, if they did first. They made it known that they had a need. And, but when it came to the apostles, the second thing I want you to see, these apostles already had an all-consuming calling from God. They had to study the Word. They had to spend time with God. They had to teach the Word. They had to hold people accountable to the Word. And that's the kind of world they'd grown up in. Uh, the synagogues, uh, the Jewish priests did everything. I mean, they had to work hard. So the Jewish priests had to, do, they had to uh, study the Scripture, uh, teach the Scripture, uh, solve all the problems, and meet all the needs. I'm sure it just absolutely wore them out. And, but, but now the church had become too big for the apostles to do all this. So if the church was going to be a place, both of truth, somebody teaching it, and of compassion, caring for the needs, how were they going to do it? Because I'm going to tell you, if we reflect the ways of God to the world, both of those things have to happen. Do you see it? God is a God of truth. God is a God of compassion. If we're going to show his ways to one another in the world, we've got to be both. Third thing I want you to see. I think it would have killed the church if they'd said, well, we can't do everything, so we're just going to keep doing what we do the way we do it. And if it doesn't fit that group, well, they can go elsewhere. Isn't that the way we so often think? I'm just telling you, for them to be a community that reflects the way of God, they had to have the starting point being, what is God like? And we've got to show that in our church. And that's what they did. Um, they knew that on one side, that if the apostles didn't have the time to set aside the study the scripture and to teach it and apply it, that they would hurt, the whole church would hurt. But they knew that they didn't have the time to do it. But they also had to show compassion. They knew that if we just keep doing what we're doing now, it won't get us where God would have us to be. Is this clear to you? So they ask, how do we address both of these things? So here's the fourth thing I want you to see. So the early church, I think, was guided by this conviction that if they were going to please God, they had to be both a community of truth and compassion. 
See, it was the fear of the Lord that was the beginning of wisdom. I think change would have been hard, just like it is for us. But when they saw that there was something in their community that didn't honor God, it didn't matter what all their structures were. They said, we've got to make a change or else we won't be a place that honors the Lord. Do you see this? It's hard for us to change. It was hard for them to change. But if we are driven by wanting to please God, we're going to get there, and he'll help us to get there. And their solution was this, to become a community of people who served people. Really where everybody would have eyes open for the needs of those around us. So that sometimes we come in and we have one kind of a need, but we have something else to bring. I better show it to you. Uh, Verse 2, there's a word there that's translated usually waiting on tables. It really just means serving the needs of people. Uh, Bottom line word for deaconing. And what the Bible calls all of us to is to be a group of people who deacon one another. Uh, We're always just looking out for the needs of people around us and we're saying, Lord... If I have a need, I've got to open that up. I've got to be transparent. But I know I still have a word of encouragement I can give. I can always put my arm around somebody and and pray that they would know God's power and presence. You know, there are ways that we can serve. But even in saying that, uh, for this to work in that church, they had to make structural changes. And they had to have a group of people that were set aside just for this task. And you you heard it when I read it, didn't you? They set aside seven people full of the Holy Spirit, people of faith, uh, godly people. So in many ways, the same kind of qualities that the teachers had to do just as high a calling, just a different calling. Uh, And they had to be empowered and set aside. And so it all began that this community made those changes found a group of people who made sure that the needs were met. It's interesting that all seven of the people had Greek names because I bet they had relationships with the people who had the most needs in the church, don't you think? So you find people who know the people in your very, very diverse kind of a church and you make sure that they are set free and some funds are there to be able to meet the needs of God's people so you could be a church of compassion. They were nimble enough to do it. Now, here in our church, I think we have some ways of identifying needs. At the end of every service, you know, I call you to come and pray. And that's one place where you can come and open your life and and share some of that. We have small groups. You go through the Connect sign, the Pathway sign, and find a small group. And as you share your life, they can do this. But I have been wondering whether we might need some sort of a structural change to make sure that we are identifying the real needs of everybody that God brings to Lake Avenue Church. You can just pray that God would give me and us much, much wisdom about this. Because I think their willingness to do this and to be guided by the character of God led to some marvelous things. Uh, I should just tell you the rest of the story. Uh, This truth with compassion led to a church that when the rest of the world looked at it, they saw a difference. What kind of differences? Well, one of them, I've talked to you about this, the marriages were stronger. Marriages were falling apart in the Roman and the Greek world. And they looked at the church and they said, what's going on there? Their marriages are stronger, their families are closer, and they are bold. (laughs) Because they would go out and no matter how much people threatened them, don't talk about Jesus anymore, they did it. 
So their commitment to the truth really developed in them more and more a community that was living and speaking of the truth. And they became a, a group of people in the first two or three centuries that just was out there meeting the needs of people. I, I, I've shown you the quote from the one emperor who was trying to wipe Christians off the face of the earth and he couldn't do it. And he complained to one of his generals, how can we do this, he said, because they care for their own poor and ours too. And it just really drew people, it just drew people to the life of the church. And um, there is a sociologist, Rodney Stark, who has written a little bit about this. I read you a part of it. I'll just tell you what happened in the first couple of centuries. Here's what Rodney Stark wrote. In the midst of the squalor and misery of the first couple of centuries, uh, illness, anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security for hurting people. Foremost was the Christian duty to alleviate want and suffering wherever it's found. And it had all started with Jesus, who said, Matthew 25, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And then he would say, Truly I say to you, as you do it to one of the least of this, my brethren, you do it for me. Stark goes on. In contrast to that, in the pagan world, and especially among their philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect. And pity was a pathological emotion. Because mercy, Stark writes, involves providing unearned help or relief. They don't deserve it. They've gotten themselves into that mess. That's what the world was saying. This was the moral climate in which the church taught that mercy is one of the primary values. That a merciful God requires human beings to be merciful. Moreover, the, the corollary that because God loves humanity... Christians may not please God unless they love one another. It sounds like my sermon. Maybe I just stole it from him. That was more incompatible with those pagan convictions. So I wrote this part of Stark's thing for you. He, he, he lists all the ways the church in the early church was reaching out to help hurting people. And then he said, all of these charitable activities were possible only because Christianity generated congregations. True communities of believers who built their lives around their religious affiliation. And it was this, Stark writes, and he was a Berkeley grad, just to let you know. It was this, above all else, that insulated Christians from the many deprivations of ancient life. Even if they were newcomers, they were not strangers, but brothers and sisters in Christ. So when calamities struck, there were people who cared in fact, there were people having the distinct responsibility to care. All congregations had deacons whose primary job was the support of the sick, infirm, poor, and disabled. I love Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It starts with this word, so. <laughs> with them caring for one another this way, so the church grew rapidly. And then this phrase, even Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. I love that phrase for being a Christian. Here's the faith, we're going to obey it. And I can understand why. I, it may not be because of this. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor. But when the priests who had to do everything, and I think it just wore them out, saw a community of people who cared for one another, they say that's the way it's supposed to be. 
no one person can do everything. This is the way it was supposed to be. And they were drawn to the Jesus who could bring about that kind of community. So in the light of these two texts, what do I want us to do? Well, obviously, I want us all to open up the inner part of our lives. And if there are things hidden, to open those to God and perhaps even confess them to one another. I'll give you an opportunity at the end of the service. You can come up and we'll pray with you and talk with you. I want you to take that Acts 5 as seriously as, as God's Word tells us we should take it. as each one of us grows in truthfulness and integrity, so our church will become more and more a place of truth and integrity. And then I long for us to be a place where where we serve one another. Um, I've been asking around, where, where can you find places to serve? And sometimes it's hard for us to let you know where they are. And sometimes you wonder, should I even get started? I might be trapped for the rest of my life in something I hate. I I know how that is because I think the same way. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that's come to my attention just late this week is that we have vacation Bible school coming up really soon here. We have hundreds of children from our community who are wanting to come, but we don't have enough people serving. And I thought maybe that's a place where you could check it out because... uh, it's only for a week, and then you can get out of it. But, but beyond that, um, you might be able to there, be there, uh, find there a place where you meet people. And, and maybe you can see that the children are people that really God's gifted you to serve. So I, I've already asked him to set up a castle. I don't know why we have a castle, but when you go out of church and you turn to the left, there'll be a castle over here near the student center, and I think people are even wearing crowns and stuff. I don't know why. But they'll be really easy to find. And maybe that would be a beginning place of serving. It's low-lying fruit service, just one week that you can begin and kind of put your toe in the water and see if God might use you. But the other thing I really want you to do is to, get, to sit in the same place when you come to church every week. You know, Pastor Jeff told you to do this and get to know the people around you. And then if, if there's a problem going on, a, a sickness in your family, a loss of a job, you can open that up and say, let's, let's pray for one another. We may have to take a little bit longer for our welcoming time, Dwayne, so that we can share with one another and go out to lunch together. I believe that those are the kinds of places that if we're all looking for an opportunity to serve, you, you'll find it. Uh, we can connect you through the pathway sign to places of other kinds of service too. But I just know this, that for us to be what God would have us to be, the ministry of compassion cannot be done by a few. But we must all be people who are serving and showing the love of Christ to one another. And with God's help, with our eyes on His Word, we here at Lake Avenue Church will grow more and more to be a community both of truth and of compassion to his glory. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father.